You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, I made the mistake yesterday of playing shinny hockey outside at Darren's rink, and even though I was the oldest guy on the ice, I was hanging in there, okay, but my lungs were torn to shreds, and I'm still feeling it this morning, so that's, that's the bottle of water in case I start choking on the side, okay? You know what's happening. Well, for those of you who are visitors, we're glad that you're here again, and we have been studying through the Gospel of Mark, so if you have a Bible or maybe you have the Bible app on your phone, um, if you haven't already, turn to Mark chapter 6. And um, if you're a regular, I don't know if this thought has come into your mind, but why are we taking so long going through the Gospel of Mark? You know, we started it last fall already, and now even in chapter 6 alone, this is our fourth Sunday on it, okay? But we're ending chapter 6 now. We're finally coming to, to the end of it. But there's some reasons why we've actually specifically done it this way. There are some things that we want to see when we go through the Word of God. And there's a principle that we've often talked about, actually, is that we want to preach through the Word of God all the, the things that we maybe would categorize as easy or even all the things that we would categorize as hard. And so we are specifically going verse by verse through all of these different chapters, seeing what is it that God wants to do as we kind of take in and ponder the scriptures before us. And so chapter 6, we have taken our time going through it. But more than that, I think it started when the pandemic was really hitting us last year. Um, it was just a deep sense of kind of the weight of the pandemic, even last year. Um, just kind of the ab abrupt change to our lives and, and the difficulty that came our way. And we were feeling, and definitely I was feeling a sense of we need a regular view of the person of Jesus Christ. We just need to regularly pause and look at his life. And so we said, we're going to go through a gospel and we're just going to take our time and look and see what is it that Jesus did in different circumstances? How did he act? What did he choose to do? What did he choose not to do? We want to look and look and look at the person of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, maybe the most interesting or maybe the one that we, some of us would balk against is we just wanted to slow down. We are, all of us, used to speed, used to convenience. I know now I watch almost all my movies with this because like some sort of trivia comes into my mind. I need to know who the actor is, how many movies have they been in. I need that information from Google quickly, you know. So we are built around speed. And so this idea of actually slowing down, kind of pausing along the way, doing something that we're not being trained to do in culture and society, to do something a little bit different. Maybe it would be difficult for some of us, but it's actually going to be an exercise where we're confident that God is going to teach us something along the way. So we've been slowly going through Mark. And this week we're coming to another story which is really famous, which is really well known, which are sometimes the hardest ones to preach because we know them. We feel like we can, you know, tell the story ourselves. We've heard them in Sunday school before. This is where Jesus is walking on the water. But as we come to the story here in Mark, 
there's one driving theme that Mark, the writer, has been wanting to communicate, and, and we see it throughout the book, actually, that he's wanting to, like, drive home as a big idea for all of us to take in, and that's actually what we're going to see in this passage here. And I'm going to look ahead a little bit, because I know we're going slow enough that you're probably going to forget these verses, okay? But we're going to look ahead and see the end of the story. This driving question of, like, who is Jesus keeps coming up. Mark keeps kind of like in his writing, not hiding who Jesus is, but slowly revealing who Jesus is. And this question keeps coming up. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, there's this little dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. And it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? There's the question. And they told him, John the Baptist, or maybe it's Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he says it again, but who do you say that I am? There's this driving question. Who is Jesus? And it keeps coming up in different ways. The first person, actually, to really recognize who Jesus is, is almost the last interchange, the last exchange of conversation in the book itself. It's in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, where the centurion says, he actually does the revealing. This is the end of the book. He says, truly this was the Son of God. A Gentile soldier is the first one to actually recognize who Jesus is. And in our passage today, Mark is trying to weave together a story of an event that actually happened. But the walking on the water has kind of like taken all the attention for us. But what actually is going on behind the scenes, what Mark really wants us to get a hold of and really grasp and understand is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? So, for the next few verses here, for the next 20 minutes, we're going to actually go through verse by verse, okay? And as we kind of look through the verses, we're going to see the story unfolding, kind of understand the context of it, and then kind of answer that question, who do we say Jesus is? So again, if you have your Bible, look at verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. Verse 45 says this, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So the context is they are in the north of Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. And now they have just fed 5,000 men. There's probably 5,000 women there as well. There's probably like five, ten thousand 10,000 kids. There is a massive crowd. And what it's actually creating on the spot there is like some buzz. There's some excitement happening. Because it's interesting here that Jesus, after that has just happened, and Mark uses the word immediately again, Jesus disperses this. He just like throws cold water on any excitement that's happening. Jesus is seeing what's happening around him. He's seeing the excitement. He's seeing the buzz. And he's actually not liking what's going on around him. He can read what's going on. And Mark doesn't give us a lot of details, right? Mark is like simple on everything. And so he just says, Jesus dispersed the crowd and dispersed the disciples. But most commentators, when they look at this, they say there's actually more that's going on here. What Jesus is doing is he is saying no. Jesus is saying no to what he sees happening around him. Because what he's seeing is this desire for him to be a, 
messianic king that the people were waiting for. Someone who could come in and just like boot out the Romans and get rid of them. And he would be their new king. He would kind of take the political power and they would own what's happening around them. And Jesus is saying, no, I am not that kind of Messiah king that you are waiting for. William Lane says this in his commentary. He says, Jesus refused to be the warrior Messiah of popular expectation. So there's this longing within the people. And there's, there's a sense even that they were still feeling, the nation was still feeling like they were a people in exile. Like they knew the experience of going off to the east and being kicked out of the nation of Israel. And now they had come back and they had lived again and established themselves. They had set up even the temple system. And yet they still felt like they were exiles. They still felt like the Romans are here. They're still oppressing us. We've got to like create some sort of like change now. And we're waiting for a Messiah who we can grab a hold of, who can take our political ambitions and he can move us forward. And Jesus is saying, I want no part of that. I want no part of that. Jesus says, you can build all kinds of systems. You can have all kinds of movements. But the real movement that actually Christ is a part of is building his kingdom. He doesn't attach himself to our ambitions. We attach ourselves to his ambitions. And the only way that Jesus can see to, to make this happen is shut this down. Send everybody away with a full belly and maybe a little bit of extra bread. And then get the disciples on a boat and send them away. And so he does that. The way of the kingdom and the way of Christ is actually one of love, service, and self-sacrifice. That's the way that Christ wants to lead. It's not a way actually that is popular for the, for the followers that are with him. For those who are eating the bread. They're loving it. Bring on more bread, Vice. So he disperses them all, sends them away, and then this is what he does next. Something maybe unexpected or maybe something that we're used to hearing Jesus do, but maybe it's not a regular part of our own lives. It's this, verse 46 says, And after he had taken leave of them, so he sent them all away, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So Jesus now is dispersed the crowd, he's sent out the disciples, and he's alone to kind of ponder what's going on around him, to the amazing things that God is doing through him. And what does he do? He pauses and he prays. Now we are called, if you're a believer, you're called a Christian, or maybe you use the term, you're like a follower of Jesus. We say those things because we are those who follow in the ways of Christ. The things that Jesus does, we want to see be a part of our lives. And so we are followers of Jesus. And maybe you've done this in your own life, or maybe you've experienced this. You've followed the, the model or the example of someone in your life. I can think even of when I was a teenager, and um, my dad was teaching me how to change the oil in my car. I used to do that. I don't do that anymore, okay? But I used to change the oil in my car, and my dad was the one who actually taught me. And so I still remember, like, being out in the garage, watching him do it, and I was like, that doesn't look too complicated. You know, you unscrew the plug, and it comes out, and you change the filter. And then there was a one time he said, okay, 
you can join in now and you can help me. And so we were going to put the, the car on the, I should know the terms, those riser things, okay? I'm not a mechanic, okay? You can see that. He's driving up on those things. And so he got me in the car, and I'm thinking, this doesn't look too hard. I drove right over the risers, okay? So I'm over the risers, and then I learned how to put a jack under the car and lift the car up to get the riser out. He taught me how to, like, change the oil and partially destroy a car, Okay? But the bottom line is all of us probably have examples of following the lead of someone. And so here we have Jesus before us. And remember, Mark is being really purposeful in selecting the things that are really important for followers of Jesus to see in the life of Jesus. And so here in this moment, we see Jesus slipping away, going by himself on a hilltop, a desolate place, alone, to pray. And what is prayer? I like how John Piper puts it. John Piper puts prayer in this way. He says, prayer is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. Our weakness somehow gets tied in with the power of the God Almighty. I mean, what are we doing when we're praying? We are, we're uttering words in faith somehow trying to tie them to the work of God in the universe. So what we just did here with these young babies and these families is we're asking God to do something that is beyond us, beyond ourselves. I mean, we can love, we can spoil, we can hold them, but God needs to do some things in their lives. And so we tie our limp wire to a lightning bolt of power, which is in Christ himself, God the Father. But what makes prayer so difficult. I, I think it's probably for all of us, it's really difficult. There might be like the odd one who they just love praying and they're really good at it, but for the majority of us, prayer is really difficult just because it feels like we're not doing enough. It feels like we should be doing something more. We should be helping in some more of a tangible way. We should be doing something with our hands or buying something or building something but prayer ends up being these words that we say to God, and so it just doesn't feel enough. But what makes prayer so powerful and what makes it so good is that it reminds us, even when we're doing it, it reminds us that it is God who has to work. It's a powerful God who has to do something that's beyond us. And so John fifteen five says, Without me, you can do nothing. And that's what prayer reminds us of. There's an amazing story in a book by Richard Lovelace. He's a theologian who was writing about renewal and bringing um, renewal to communities and to neighborhoods. And he tells the story of the awakening at Hut in 1727. You probably haven't heard of this story. I hadn't. But it says this, and you can see the quote there. He says, The awakening at Heron Hut in 1727 came after the establishment of a round-the-clock prayer meeting for the reviving and spreading of the church. The Heron Hut prayer meeting persisted for a hundred years until the great century of missionary expansion was launched. Can you believe that? A prayer meeting that lasted a hundred years. We're starting that next week, guaranteed, you know. We're not, sorry. The prayer of God's people 
is something that you don't see the fruit of it often for years and years to come. Which makes it really difficult again. We want to see production. We want to see something happen. And yet here we see something that was in, in the works for a hundred years. But can I remind you that many of you, and if you come from a Christian family, many of you are sitting here directly as a prayer answered to maybe your parents or maybe your grandparents. Or depending on how far your family line goes back in Christian faith, you could be the answer to a prayer by your great-grandmother. It's not unheard of to see a century worth of prayers come to be answered in your lifetime. But the question is, are you willing to plant those seeds that may only be answered in a decade or in 50 years or maybe even beyond your lifetime? Jesus, in his moment of busy ministry, in his moment of kind of putting an ease to all that's going on around him, says, I'm actually going to set this time aside and pray. So for those of you who are part of Citizens and you're in a missional family and you want to reach out to your neighbors with the gospel or you want to maybe connect with those who you work with and, and see the gospel spread into their lives, can I implore you to begin with the work of prayer? To pray together as missional families. To pray as families. And to pray as individuals that God would actually do something in your lifetime or beyond your lifetime. And practically, because prayer is so difficult, we've talked about it here a number of times. Just practically, let me just remind you that you can pray. This is the beauty of it. You can pray at any time. Except when you're sleeping. But you can pray at any time time. And I often recommend to people, use your commute if you're doing that. Use your time when you're on a run or exercising. Use the time when you are just sitting there having a coffee. Grab those opportunities that are there within your day already and remind yourself that you can actually be praying and committing things to God and for his hand to be at work through those prayers. The story goes on. Jesus sees what's going on. Look at verse 48. Verse 48 says this, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Here we have this most famous part of the story where Jesus is walking on the water. And remember I said, this is Mark's writing of what happened. And if you remember, as we've been talking through the Gospel of Mark, he's taken the testimony, the, the stories that Peter told him, and is writing them down. And so, as we look at this story, if you look at Matthew's account, you'll see something significant that is actually missing in Mark's account. And you know what that is? Peter also walked on the water too. It's kind of like telling the story of the 93 World Series with the Blue Jays without talking about the home run, right? At the end of the game, like the game-winning home run. You just tell the story about the Jays winning the World Series and they're like, anything else happen? No, there's nothing else significant that happened, you know, other than a home run that won the game. And here we look at the story and we're like, Mark, why did you not include this aspect of Peter walking on the water. 
The reason is that Peter and Mark both want us to see Jesus for who he is. Want us to, to know him as the God of the universe. And so we see here at the end of verse 48, an interesting statement that is actually, for our minds, for our non-Jewish minds, it doesn't stand out for us. But for the Jewish mind, it would have brought back Old Testament references. So at the end of verse 48, he says, He came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. It's kind of a curious statement. It's almost like Jesus wasn't planning on going into the boat at all. Like he was just going to walk by them as he's going to Bethsaida. Like, see you guys, I'll meet you there, you know, when it's time. It says he's going to walk by. It seems really curious. What Mark is doing is actually drawing out for us some Old Testament connections. And most importantly, the connection from Exodus 33. And we're going to read these verses, starting in verse 18, where we have this exchange between Moses and God. And verse 18 says this, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20 says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see what's happening here? What Jesus is doing is he's actually living out, he's actually acting out before them, this important passage from Exodus 33 that every Jewish mind would have burned into their understanding of who God is. That you can't really experience God face to face. You can't do what Moses was longing for to see his glory. You'd be like destroyed in, in an instant. And so God creates in this Exodus passage a way for Moses to experience him, to know him. And so he passes by him and Moses sees his backside. And now here Jesus before the disciples, passes by in front of them. Job 9 verse 8 also gives an allusion to what Christ is doing here. It says this, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? And then verse 11 says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. In the Old Testament, when you see instances where it seems as though Jesus is present. Theologians call that theophanies. Those are times where you look back and you see the physical representation of God. Now what we're seeing here is the God of the Old Testament being brought into the things that Jesus is doing. And it's Jesus' way of declaring to the disciples, to Mark who's recording this story, and even to us now 2,000 years later, that this is Jesus who is God. God of the Old Testament. All that God is, is in, totally in the person of Jesus. And the disciples here completely miss it, okay? They do like, just like we do. They completely miss it, okay? Look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, 
they started quoting Exodus 33. No, they didn't, okay? They were totally, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. Like, they were afraid. They didn't know what was going on. Whether they didn't get a good glimpse of him or whatever it was, we know that it was the middle of the night. They're exhausted. They've been rowing. They've been fighting this storm, and they're not getting anywhere. And now Jesus comes before them, and they totally miss it. And what does he say to them? As they're missing this moment, it says in verse 50, For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So Jesus, in this loving, servant, self-sacrificing God, he comes to them and gives them words of love and care. He doesn't give them a lesson in theology. And what do they do? What is their response? So he comes and says these words to them. Verse 51 says, And he got out into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. So I'm sure they were happy then. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So in the moment, they're astounded when Jesus comes and the seas are calmed and he comes into the boat with them and they're still confused about the bread, right? They're still confused about the, the bread that was scattered and all the loaves and they're still wondering, how does this happen? And let me just tell you, the narrative of the Gospels and the stories within that are captured in the, the total story of the Bible are filled with doubts and questions. So if you come to the Word of God, if you come to Jesus and you are full of doubts and questions, you will find, when you read the stories, all over the place, doubts and questions around what God is doing, what Jesus is up to, how is this going to work out, how is this terrible situation going to actually be used for God's good. There's all kinds of confusion centered around what God is doing. So if you're in that place, you're in good company. But one of the things that the scriptures remind us to do is, firstly, is we're reminded to be gracious with each other in our moments of confusion, in our seasons of doubt. Jude 22 specifically says, be patient, be gracious with people who are doubting. That's our calling as believers. But what Jesus does and what the scriptures do is they try to nudge us towards belief. They don't just want us to stay in that place of doubt. They want us to move forward in belief. And so the stories are recorded for us. They're written down so that we can see what God is actually doing. In many stories, we see the resolution of things that are happening so that we can step further, step into and believe in what Jesus is doing. Probably the most famous story of doubt is the story of Thomas, the one who doubted that Jesus was alive. And he's like, I'm not going to believe ever unless, unless he's right here in front of me. You know, the proof is standing right here in front of me. I'm not going to believe at all. And so Jesus is gracious to Thomas and actually comes to him. And he says, come Thomas, you can touch my side. You can touch my hands. I know you're doubting. Here I am. You need to like physically touch and hold me. You can do that. But listen to what he says in John 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it on my side. So 
you need that affirmation, go ahead, do it. Here I am standing before you. But then he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, this is your moment. I'm here. You doubt, I totally get that. But now I'm here, I'm showing you myself. I'm revealing to you who I am. And so he says, don't stay on the side of disbelief. Step, Thomas. Step into belief. Believe in me. And so the gracious Jesus comes to these guys again in the story. And he comes to us this morning and he says, you're confused. You're in doubt about Jesus, about Christianity. He says, there's a place for you. But maybe now is the moment actually to step. To step in faith. Because of who Jesus is. If for nothing else except for who Jesus is. And then the story goes on. And we'll conclude here with this. The story goes on and it says, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they had heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were healed were made well. So they actually end up being in the complete opposite direction of where they were supposed to go. Okay, if you look at a map, they were supposed to go to Bethsaida. They are totally on the other side of the lake. Circumstances have totally shifted their life. And what is God doing? God is working. God's still doing what he wants to do. People are healed. People come to him. And so where do you see yourself maybe in this story? We've looked at it in the context. We've looked at it to make sense of what Mark is doing with this text, what it means for believers even today. But where do you find yourself in the story? Are you worn out after rowing in a bunch of waves for hours and hours, maybe months and months? Are you feeling confused at what God is doing and maybe you're like the disciples in the boat and you're like Jesus is on the shore he seems really distant he seems away from me he seems like unapproachable are you feeling like you're going in the wrong direction I would just want to leave us here with two words of encouragement okay depending on where you are at in the season of your life from the story here there's two things I want you to leave with clarity on and the first is this Jesus is with you in your pain. In the story here, Jesus sees the struggle that the disciples are in. He sees them roaring. And he doesn't just pull out his binoculars and kind of watch what's happening and stay at a distance. And kind of say, man, you guys should get this together. Get your act together. Jesus comes to them. So much so that he has to perform a miracle to walk on water to get to them. And you know that the person of Jesus has always done that. Whether it's the incarnation coming as a baby to be with his people, or whether it's getting close to people who are on the outs, people who are the hurting, people who the regular society says, I have no place for you. Jesus regularly shows us a God who comes near. 
But secondly, not only does he come near to us in our pain, only Jesus can say, take heart, it is I. The gods that the ancient world was used to were gods that were aloof. They were gods that were distant. If you think of, you know, you think of Zeus or you think of some of these gods, they, where did they live? They lived away from people. They were distant. Even the, the people we call, we don't call them gods anymore, okay? We call them stars now, okay? The people that we follow on Instagram or the people that we see on YouTube, those people are also, they're like distant. They're away from us. For some reason, we worship them. We give our allegiance to them. We give our time to them. They are distant and away from us. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus comes near to us. Jesus can identify with us. He is God of the universe who put on flesh, who came to live with us, who experienced sadness, who experienced difficulty, experienced fear, experienced oppression, and ultimately even experienced death in our place on the cross. But he didn't stay there. His death was blown apart by the power of the resurrection. And so Jesus, when he says, take heart, it is I, says it with a deep sense of identification with who we are so that we can say to him, you get me, you understand my circumstance, you understand my difficulty. And he says, I do. And he still comes near. Over the history of the church, and we'll close with this, this image of a people, a local church in the boat has kind of stuck. You know, this story of disciples in a boat struggling is something that has been carried over history because it's something that all of us can actually identify with. And so when you come into traditional church buildings like this one, I don't know if you know this, but there's different names for different parts of this church. So if you go into like a giant Gothic church somewhere in Europe or something, there are places in the church that have names, okay? So when you came in this morning, you walked in through the vestibule, okay? I don't know if you've heard that word recently, the vestibule. It's this walkway into the church. And the larger foyer in the back there where there's actually people sitting is the narthex. Okay, I like that name. You are in the narthex. It's the place, this large entrance. Over here where the choir would stand, we don't have a choir, is the chancel. Okay, the place where they would actually stand. And then in the back where you keep your sacred elements is the sacristy. The place where you keep these sacred elements objects. But do you know what this section's called here, where all of us are sitting, all of us together? That is called the nave. And the nave is actually from the Latin word for ship. Because here we are together as God's people, men and women in the, in the struggle and the waves of the world around us. And this actually, this gathering is actually meant to remind us of our hope and our true anchor, which is only Christ. And so when we sit in the ship together and we gather on Sundays and we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, it is the God who comes to us on the water, in the midst of the storm, the loving, faithful Father, the person of Jesus. It's him who we worship together. And so the saying works that we're all in this boat together. So let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this powerful story, this powerful testimony of your work on the sea, Lord. And God, I just pray for each one who's here, and I pray for the different circumstances of life, the the joys and the difficulties, the doubts and the struggles. God, would you actually meet us right now? God, would you speak to each of our hearts in a significant and a powerful way? And as we sing this next song, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in, in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that each one of us in our different ways would take that step of faith, that we would be like Thomas and we would heed the words of Christ. We would not disbelieve, but we would in this moment believe. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we close in one more song of worship?